Well, amen. Well, you enjoy your extra hour sleep last night? Like that? <clears throat> I didn't. I watched football. A little extra hour up there. So um, I'm just as <clears throat> groggy and sleepy as always. But I want us to take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This came from the East Campus where things are going well over there. They had a big crowd and uh, just a great spirit. And um, boy, half of them were wondering who in the world I was. You know, I don't go over there very much anymore, and there's a lot of new people, and uh, praise God for it. And so um, next week, big week next week, because we're going to be uh, talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ as it talk, is talked about in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 and following. And so as we're looking at this, I know, I mean, aren't you excited about that? That's pretty good, right? And, uh, but I know a lot of things could happen uh, in the next week. And so if Jesus comes back before next Sunday morning, I've asked Tim Johnson to take charge of the services, and he's agreed to, to do that and help me out there. Um, but this morning, um, I'm going to be looking at a passage that, you know, as you're preaching through books of the Bible, there's always passages that you're, you think, wow, I, I wish I could leave that out because of the subject matter. But yet, as I studied uh, the Scripture, I found it to be very beneficial in the research of doing this, and so I'm hoping it's going to be beneficial to you. Because oftentimes we ask ourselves the question, what do I need to do to really please God? And it used to be back in, I don't know, 1950s, I guess, 40s, 60s, we had a list of do's and don'ts. If you do these things, then you can at least appease God. And I think that was more uh, the expression than please God. You want to keep God kind of out of your life a little bit. You don't want him to punish you for anything. And so you got a bunch of do's and you got a lot of don'ts. More don'ts than do's, right? And so we call that today legalism. And we want to kind of come away from that. In fact, really rebel against that sometimes. And we said, well, we don't want to be involved in legalism. And so therefore, we're not going to do this, 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 or this. But sometimes you got to know what the rules are. I mean, if I have a ruler in my life, and I do in Jesus Christ, then a ruler really has rules. And I need to know what to do to please him, to live uh, successfully before him in this life. And the church at Thessalonica had the same thing. They wanted to know what they needed to do. I mean, after all, they'd only, most of them only been Christians about a year. Paul was there a year before. He'd been there for three weeks. And for the first three chapters, all he really talks about as how great they were and how wonderful they are. But now he's saying, look, in order for the Christian life to work, there's got to be ethics involved. In fact, ethics really is foundational to the Christian life because if Jesus Christ doesn't change the way you live, then, of course, it's not going to help you, but it's also not going to help those outside the church at all either. Remember what we've said. We've said, you know, some churches want to be attractional. They, they want to have the, everything going on so they can attract you to come. And nothing wrong with that. We want to be attractional too. We don't want to be distractional, right? And, uh, but what we want to do is build Jesus in your life that you're going to go out into the world and be that coming attraction. People are going to want to know about Jesus because of how you're living. Well, in order to do that, you really need to know what to do and how to live. Now, notice, I want to read verse four, verse one of chapter four, and then skip all the way down to verse 12 real quick, because I want to tell you, share with you the reason behind Paul's writing this to this church. He says, finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you have received from us. And he says, look, 
You've already received the word from, you, from me. Uh, this is stuff I'm reviewing uh, for you. And he says, from now how you ought to walk and to please God. Now, that's the reason he's giving them this instruction. He said, I want you to know how not to appease God, but to really please him. Then down in verse 12, so that, here we have a reason for it all, that we might walk, walk properly before outsiders, he adds, and be dependent on no one. He says, look, here's what you need to do in order to please God, and here's what you need to do at the same time to uh, be a, that coming attraction to outsiders. And so as we open up this passage, we see three things. We see the principle real quickly, then the practice. I have three points under the practice, then that's going to take in the bulk of the passage. And then finally in verse 12, we'll once again review the purpose. Let's look. First of all, the principle in verse 1. He says, finally, it's sort of like when you're preaching a sermon. You know what that means, right? When I say finally, it doesn't mean anything, all right? So finally then, brothers, and he's really... This is, this is not a, this is kind of like a therefore. He's not saying, look, I'm closing out the letter. What he's saying is, yeah, but now. But now that I've talked to you about those three, first three chapters, here's what I want to get into. Here's what I really want to exhort you and challenge you about today. He says, I want to ask you, that's, that's just simply a courteous asking, urge you a lot stronger. He says, I want to challenge you in the Lord that you receive from us, that you ought to walk and to please God as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through Lord Jesus. He said the, the instructions here are the marching orders. Now, here's what he's saying. He says, notice, he says, you please God. I want you to, you, you're doing this, but I, I want you to do it more, more and more. Now, sometimes we get in a church service and we come up and the pastor preaches something, maybe this church or another church, and you're thinking, oh, you know, he's just kind of picking on me. You know, he's, he's, you know, I'm doing all this, I'm doing all this, and now he wants me to do more and change here and change there. Here's what we're trying to get across most of the time. You're doing good. You just got to keep on doing it. You got to keep on going. How many of you have ever seen a t-ball game? Anybody here? You played t-ball? Anybody played t-ball? Okay. And have, you, have you coached it? Anybody coached it besides me? I've coached t-ball. And I've been around a lot of coaches that coach T-ball. And uh, they, you know, they don't know what they're doing. I'm talking about the coaches, not the kids. No, but um, the kids don't know anything about the game. You're really teaching uh, kids how to play ball. And they get up to the plate, and they've got the little ball on a tee, and they're swinging, and sometimes they miss it. Sometimes they knock the tee over, but then they hit it. The crack of the bat. And they're headed around the bases. And you're yelling, what? Run, run, right? Run! Well, they get to first base, and they stop. And, and the kid out in right field is still looking for the ball with his hat over his eyes. And you keep yelling. Well, the, oh, by this time, the parents are up. The, the stands are up. Run, run, run! It's not that he hasn't done good so far, but she just wanted to keep on going. I, I've, I've seen no child get to first base and start crying because everybody's yelling, run and run and run, and he's thinking, I've done the wrong thing. I've, in fact, the other side is I've seen children make outs at first base and keep running around the bases all the way to home. All right? they, they had no idea. Everybody kept saying run, so they just kept on running. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, look, you're doing good. I want you to keep on doing it more and more. I want you to keep on running the bases. Now, he says, I reminded you of a few things. And we get into the practice here. 
I've reminded you of a couple of things. In fact, three. One of them's really general. But he said, before I get into this, I want you to know the principle is this, obedience to God. First Samuel chapter 15, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He's saying, look, the sacrifice that all the Jewish people did, in fact, Jesus was the, the sacrifice ultimately, but they did sacrifices and they could come to a place and a burnt, have, have a burnt offering of an animal, put it up in their heart not being it at all. They, they were just going through it. It was a legalism to them. It's something that they had to do, not necessarily from the heart. That's the sacrifice. It's the outside. But he says obedience comes from the inside. It comes from the heart. Now, I know that we have had a tendency in the past of churches to be legalistic. And the reason why they were that way, at least at first, is to protect you because pastors love you. And so they don't want you to do the sin, so they put up a guardrail. Well, that's good. You need a guardrail. Well, then there's another guardrail. It's sort of like, well, you shouldn't you know, lust, so therefore don't even go to the beach. That's, that, that, that's a guardrail way out here. And so if you go to the beach, you're in sin. Well, we just know that's not, that, that's territorial. That has, has nothing to do with Florida, right? You can't preach that in Florida, you know? And so all of a sudden, way out here, you have the, the legalism involved. He said, that's just all um, X, brand X. He said, the heart of it is you don't want to sin against the Lord. You want to obey him. And so you can fall off the horse in two ways. You can go to the right, to the left. You can go into legalism. You can go into license. You know, we, we sing all the time, we're free, we're free, we're free. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want to do. It means that we're free from the shackles of sin. God's forgiven us of everything that we've ever done. So you can fall off the horse in either way. And he's saying, look, to obey is what I'm talking about, not, not the sacrifice stuff the real heart of the matter, and then he gets into the practice, first of all, in moral rightness. Look in verse 3. For this is the will of God and your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, underline the word honor, nor in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, let's just take this verse 5 real quickly. Rome was a beast at heart. There's no, there's no nation, maybe in history, that had worse, worse sexual practices than the nation of Rome. And even in the church at Thessalonica, they had a variety of men, at least had a variety of women. They had a wife that gave, you know, legitimate children, gave him legitimate children, heirs, he had a mistress, which usually was also a companion, a recreational type, uh, intellectual companion. They had concubines, and it was kind of, kind of slaves. And then you had even prostitutes. So you had all this going on, and yet you may be thinking today, well, man, you know, those guys, man, they had it made. They had it made so much they were coming out of that and into Christianity by the droves, even when Paul wasn't around, even when there's nobody to pastor the church. They were coming into that relationship with God. And he's just, they're already doing this. They're already avoiding, abstaining from sexual immorality. 
but he wants to remind them of it. What about our society today? We are, let me just say this in general, we are a pleasure-oriented society. That's the reason why we uh, are preoccupied with our time off. We're, we have drug addiction, opioid addiction. We have people wanting to legalize marijuana. We're having one out of seven people in America have trouble with alcoholism. We have all this going on, but at the heart of this is, is, is sex. That's what's the heart. Now, let me say this before uh, I go on. I know that this is uncomfortable for some of you to say, to, to talk about this. It's uncomfortable for me. And this is my third time through it this morning. All right. So it's a, I, I'm, I'm from a background. We didn't, we didn't never mention that in my house growing up. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, Ozzie and Harriet and, you know, Dick Van Dyke or um, Andy Griffith show. I mean, my, my parents didn't even work, watch three, Three's Company. Uh, and so that's where I'm from. And I, I know that we have people in here that we've had before. I remember years ago, 10 years ago, uh, I was preaching through a passage. And when you preach through a book, you just got to take it all. You got to take what's there, right? You got you to do it all. And so I was preaching through it. And I, I preached about this. And they left the church because I, I mentioned sex in the church. You see, when you have that kind of, um, of attitude, and I, I know that, in fact, that message, somebody says, you must have been, were you angry, pastor? I mean, you're, you were red in the face. I said, no, I was blushing the whole sermon, you know. But when we talk about the, this kind of thing, we tend to think it's uh, distasteful. Uh, sex is something that's dirty. It's disgusting. But you'll never find that in the Bible. And when we miss that, we allow the world to define what we ought to be sexually. We allow the world to define that. You look at our world today. Pornography on the internet is just rampant. And, uh, you know, somebody said, yeah, one youth pastor or whatever could look at pornography on a smartphone. He just gave an example. You look, look at a smartphone and then in the next few minutes be reading scripture to a youth group. And we see this. In fact, it's been estimated that an enormous percentage of people in America watch uh, internet pornography. And so we, we're finding this in TV, the internet, the movies, and even our society is divided by sex. You say, yeah, male and female. No, I'm not talking about that. Now, I know that in our country, uh, immigration has become an issue of late, and I realize that that has a lot to do with voting and things like that. But the real heart of the issue, even the last Supreme Court justice, it was all about sex. Two things divide us in this country. And if you think about it, you'll realize that I'm right. Whatever side you are on, it divides. One is gay rights, and the other, even more longer than that one, is abortion. Abortion's been dividing the country since 1979. And so we are divided because of the sexual mores of our nation as well. And so the Bible tells us, I'm going to share something with you that may really surprise some of you. And... Uh, but believe me, I'm, I'm concerned about you, you know, getting upset, leaving and all, but I'm a lot more concerned. This is what concerns me. As I preach this message, there's been something in your background that has caused you to say, hey, look, I, I tried to deal with that. I tried to deal with it. And now, Pastor, you're just bringing it back up. Leave it in the past. I'm going to share something with you that's really going to help you in the future. Notice what it says here. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. This word, immorality, is where we get our word pornea, pornea. It means any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Now that means, abstain means to don't do it. And so the Bible teaches 
that anything outside of the marriage, any sexual relationship outside the marriage um, situation is wrong. You say, wow. I thought nobody believed that anymore. You got to be kidding. Let me just say that among the four major religions in the world, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, those four, all of them feel the same way about this and have felt this way down through the centuries. This is nothing, this is nothing new. We have societies, other than the American culture, of course, and Western civilization, that feel the same way of what I just read. Even today, in today's world, anything outside, why would, why would God give that to us? He gives us all kinds of desires, and yet we can only fulfill them one way. Well, we'll realize that when we come to an understanding of what the Bible teaches about the relationship between the body and the heart. Now, he says in this that we need to abstain from this, and then he goes on to say that in your sanctification, now somehow or another, your being set apart for holiness has something to do with a sexual relationship. Now, let me, let me just say this better. The sexual relationship you have in, in the Lord, if it's right, it's going to help you become more holy. And he says in verse 4, underline the word honor. Now, again, we, we think to ourselves, I can't believe you're even talking about this, and I can't believe it either, but it's in the Bible, so I'm, I'm preaching it. And so you say, it's just disgusting. You'll never find that in the Bible. What about the book of Song of Solomon? The whole book is about a relationship between a man and a woman. What about, and I know I'm going to get all kinds of mail about this, and you need to send this to Tim Dix if you don't like this message. That's all I got to say. And um, Tim Johnson will be fine too. You know, just whoever, anybody but me. <laughs> no, but, but here's the thing. At Christmas time, what do we, what do we talk about? Mary and the incarnation. And we say the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. What do you think the implication is there? The Bible never presents this as disgusting. It, it has something to do here with our sanctification, with our being made holy, and honor in the Lord. What does that have to do with it? Well, in the Bible, the body and the heart, and Tim Keller brings out this real well among some other commentators, the body and the heart go together. In other words, when you say, I'm opening myself up, and as one person put it, and disrobe physically, you have already disrobed your heart spiritually. You've already given your heart. They go hand in hand together. There's, there's a sense of commitment there that you're making with your body. And if you've not made that commitment in your heart, then it becomes, in a sense, uh, certainly an immoral, immoral uh, situation but also becomes a very hurtful situation. The Bible tells us about committing our heart and committing our body. What happens here? We, we honor one another. You, you humanize someone, as one person put it. When you uh, are part of it together, body, soul, heart, all together, then you humanize somebody. You make them feel important in life. And it's more than just the physical need, but God places the physical need there to draw us, not only to making babies, but to draw us as one together as a married couple. 
and used in the right way, it's something great and something that will bring honor to your life. And so we look and we understand that in the, the, the whole idea of uh, what has happened in the Thessalonians, they, they felt like that money was sacred, so they held on to it. Sex was not sacred, so they just spread it out. The Christians came along and said, sex is sacred, and it was limited in the marriage relationship, and money is not sacred, so they spread it out. And that revolutionized the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire fell as, as, as many, many regimes has fallen because of this one thing, the sexual mores of their country. Notice what it says here uh, with me again. He says, um, sacrifice, abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Why? Because if you can't do that, if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you'll not be able to control that. And therefore, your heart won't be involved in the commitment of your body. When the heart belongs to another person and you commit one another in, in, in the body, that's a commitment. Somebody says, well, you know, I love you. I love you. I, I'm committed to you. And, and, and they want to have sex. And you say, well, are you ready to marry me? Well, no. Well, they're not committed. They have not committed their heart at all. And that's the emphasis of what the Bible is trying to teach us in the Word of God. Now, what happens? Why does this make a difference? What happens when we go the other direction? We dehumanize, as it were, ourselves. I've shared with you the guy back at the uh, University of Georgia that told me at 25 years old, he says at 30, he called me Mercer, he said, Mercer at 30, I'm gonna give my heart to Jesus. And he was a party animal. I said, there's no way, David, that's probably gonna happen because as, as the moral fiber continues to go downhill in your life, you're not going to want Jesus five years from now. Probably no more than what you want him now. It tears away at the moral fiber. But notice also, it says here that you defraud. that no one, verse, verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. And we told you beforehand and Solomon warned you, look, we've already told you these things. I'm warning you again, but you're going to hurt your brother. What happens when there's an affair going on? Well, you not only hurt yourself, maybe mess up your entire life, but also the person that you're having that affair with, you're defrauding them because you're, you're committing, you're asking them to commit their body without you committing your heart. And then you're defrauding the husband or the wife that's involved. There's going to be hurt there, hurt. Many people in this room have been hurt because of that affair in the past. And it's hard for you to get over it, hard for you to, to work through that. And so what the world does is look at us and they say, well, there's a Christian for you. There's a Christian and, uh, you know, they're sexually active and maybe they're single and sexually active or whatever and, and they're just like us. Now, in the world today, unlike 20 years ago, they're not necessarily going to judge you. They're not going to say, well, how dare that Christian, unless they were raised in church. They're just not going to think that way. But what they're going to think is, he's just like me. She's just like me. They don't have the answers for me. Not really. Because if they had the answer, they'd be living differently. Again, ethics 
make a difference in our life. Now, if you've gone that way before, dear friends, you can have forgiveness of everything that you've ever done, and now you have new information about what the sexual relationship is supposed to mean with God, and you can start all over and do something different in your life. But then I want you to notice, I want you to notice, and you've had enough for today, I know. You've already, I can see the look on your face. You've had enough. But I'm going to give you more. <clears throat> it says, he says, for God has not called us for an impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this regards not man. You're not dis- disregarding me. He said, well, how dare that, that pastor hurt my feelings? Or how bring up the past? I'm not offending you. You're being offended by God. You're being offended by the word of God. And that's always a dangerous place to be. You never want to be there. Verse 9, he says, brotherly love. I'm just going to read these verses to you real quickly. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's where Thessalonica was. That's a bigger territory. But we, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He says, you're doing it. We're doing it right here in this church. We're loving one another. We're ministering to one another. He said, just keep rounding the bases, man. You're on first base, go to second. You're on second base, just keep running to third and so forth. Cross home, go again. And have fun doing it. Keep running, keep doing what you need to do. But then lastly, and this is not a change of the subject. The brotherly love is, is in between Connecting what we've <clears throat> talked about uh, with, with uh, the sexual relationships and work. You love your brother. If you love your brother, th- these are the two things, you're going to be able to work on that. And what does he say in verse 11? And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And what makes, make, what makes a busybody? A busybody is someone that doesn't have anything to do that's not invested in anything. And so they want to mind everybody else's business. So he says to do this, to work with your hands and be as we instructed you. He says you need to be diligent, diligent in your work. It's a stewardship. You've been given certain talents. You've been given certain spiritual gifts. You've been given the ability to work. He says the the thing that we're going to answer for when we get to heaven is, is what we've done with our stewardship. Part of that is our work. And if you're going to be the coming attraction to those who want to know about Jesus, they want to know about your work. I know it's cool in school sometimes not to, not to talk about your grades and things like that, but people notice on whether you're trying your best. Now, how does this work really make a difference? I remember when I was a student, I worked at Westinghouse during the summers, and I, I, this couple of summers I was working on an assembly line. And I had a chance, I, I went to one job here, the next half, half of the day I went to this job and swapped the next day and back and forth, two jobs. Any, any monkey could do it, you know. But the rest of the jobs were a little more complicated. It's on the assembly line. And these guys rotated all the time, about 10 different jobs. So I got a chance to share Christ with everybody uh, in, that, uh, in that area that summer. And inevitably, somebody, of course, looking for an excuse, probably not to not to deal with the issue, would look at me and say, look, you know, I understand, and I'm sure you live it and all that, and you're studying to be, be a preacher, but see that guy over there? And I said, yeah, I, I see him. He said, he claims to be a Christian, always inviting me to church, 
He's always talking about Jesus, but he never does his job. He said half the time he's off talking to somebody, and we're having to do his job in order to do our job. Ruined his testimony. Ruined, ruined my testimony, my ability to witness, because he wasn't doing his job. Listen, when you don't do your job, somebody else is going to have to do your job for you in order to be able to do their job. That's not the witness. And so we look at why we work. And one doctor in the book, Why Work, said years ago, right after World War II, as he, uh, this was written, he did a survey and he discovered that there's two reasons why people did their work. One, the motivation was money and the other was success. Either you worked and worked in order to gain enough money to make a living for your family and to take time off. Even when I was in business school, we had someone come to us, a very successful businessman. I mean, big, big time in Athens, Georgia. And he said, you know, whatever I say about work, uh, you need to know that most of your really quality time, the time you really enjoy, is going to be when you get off work. Just really for the money or for the success that other people would look at you in a different way. This writer said for the first time in his life, he noticed something different among the World War II people. When they went in to fight in the battles, they were together for a cause, for a purpose, and that purpose brought, that cause brought them together. They weren't in it for the money. They got paid peanuts. They weren't in it for glory. Very few of them ever received any glory from it. They were in it for the cause. And when you and I think about what is work supposed to be, work is supposed to be something that's productive. It's supposed to help our fellow man. And it's supposed to be doing something that God wants us to do. So what are we doing with our life? How are we working? The Bible says that that if you're going, you know, the person that doesn't work shouldn't eat. And that's not talking about people that can't work. It's just talking about people that refuse. And then others are just working and working. And from the outside, people are looking in and saying, well, you know, you do okay at work, but boy, there's, there, maybe, maybe you're driven, but boy, you're, and you get, you get mad because things don't work out for you because you're driven for success. Or you get that paycheck and that's all you, all you talk about. All you talk about is your time off and and boy, you're just giving penance maybe to the work. But what about those people that really are engaged? Those people who know the will of God for their life, who know where they fit. There's joy in that. Eric Lydell, who was um, a sp sprinter during the 1924 Olympics, won a gold medal there. His sister in the movie Chariots of Fire was talking to him and said, Eric, look, I don't know, what, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing with your life? Here you are running these races. You know that God has called you to be a, a missionary in China. He says, I know, and God has called me to China. I'm going to be a missionary in China. But God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Some of you wonder how, why pastors preach so long. Now, nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> Why do you preach so long? Well, I don't know the answer for everybody, but probably I, I go a little bit longer than I need to go sometimes because when I get up and open up God's Word, I know I'm, I'm where God wants me to do, doing what God wants me to do. And when I open up God's Word and I preach God's Word, I feel His pleasure. I do. I do. And I want you 
to feel that same pleasure, not from preaching, maybe not from singing up on stage, but just whatever God has called you to do. And do it knowing you've got one boss and he's hanging over your shoulder the whole time to encourage you, but also to make us accountable. And that one boss is God. Whether it's ethically, whether it, and ethically is the same thing as also working, that's part of the ethics. See, ethics is huge in the Christian life because if Jesus Christ is not changing your life, then you have to wonder how in the world could the Holy Spirit of God come inside and indwell somebody and they're saying, I know I'm going to heaven when I die and it not change their life. How can that be? And when the outside world's looking in, it brings me to my last point very quickly, and that is the purpose. And in verse 12, it says, first of all, to please God, but then walk toward outsiders because ethics is that key. So what about you today? Has God really changed your life? Has he? And you say, well, I believe he has. But boy, this is, this is uh, some new stuff, and I've got to really apply this to my life. I hope that's where you are today. But if you've never received Jesus into your heart, there's a whole new world waiting for you. There's a whole new adventure awaits you in your heart. A new relationship with your spouse. A new relationship with the world outside. A new relationship with church family right here inside these walls. And if you've never received Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. With heads bowed, eyes closed, this morning, if that's the prayer of your heart, pray with me right now silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you that your original design for my life was to live with you forever and to have a great relationship with you. Lord, I'm sorry that sin has marred that and I live in a broken world. In a lot of ways, I'm broken. So God, I pray that you'd fix me at the cross. I pray that you'd fix my heart. Come into my life and help make me the person that you originally designed to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.